Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I've been back since about the 19th of June. So I've been back for a lot of the summer. So I get to see some of the holidays that I usually miss. And also my birthday, which I'm usually traveling for on my birthday. So last weekend, I did my hike, my usual hike up at the ranch. And I did scare up an elk. But the week before that, I also did the hike. And I had only been back about a week, and I was amazed at how little energy I had. On the boat, you tend to sit around a lot, and you're not getting a lot of exercise. So when I got back from the boat, I went to go do my usual hike, which is about a seven-mile hike, uh, up about 2,000 vertical feet and around and back down, and, and I was just exhausted. Of course, I'm hiking now at about 8,200 feet, or give or take a couple thousand feet. And I just did not have energy. I'd have to stop and catch my breath and stop and catch my breath. And then last weekend, I did the same hike again, and I was improving significantly. I did scare up an elk on my hike. So I'm scouting the area for the elk hunt again this year. I do have another elk permit but I've got to get through the meat I've got from last year, the protein-rich freezer that I've got. I've got to work through some of that before I bother shooting another elk. Also saw a lot of Duffy grouse, and also we have a family of sandhill cranes that are living up at the ranch. Now, I don't hunt sandhill crane. There is a season for it, but I've never wanted to shoot sandhill crane. I will do some Duffy grouse hunting later on in the year, but right now they're just... They're all over the place. I'm seeing a lot of them, but uh, it's not the season yet, so I won't bother with that. But I did hike up to an area which has a tree stand in it that somebody put in, and I went up and climbed up in the tree stand and and just sat there for about a half an hour seeing if any wildlife came through. And I didn't see any wildlife, but I did hear some woodpeckers pecking on some pine trees back in the distance, and it was pleasant. And then I went off trail to wander on back, and I did scare up a, an elk. And I couldn't tell if it was a cow elk or a bull elk, but it was a pretty big elk. This time of year, they stay pretty hidden, pretty hidden. So you have to pretty much kick them out. They're, they're pretty much nocturnal animals. They really don't come out and feed until nighttime. So it's rare to actually see an elk during the day. In fact, for 20 years, I'd been up at the ranch wandering around, and I never saw an elk. Well, until last year, or I'll actually till a couple of years ago when I started actually looking for them. But they're around. There's a lot of them up there. So we had a, a big family picnic, not really picnic, get-together on the 24th, which was yesterday in Utah, 24th of July. It's a big holiday in Utah. It's when the pioneers came over the mountains and came down into the Salt Lake Valley. And so it's a state holiday. Back down to the office today, I want to get out a couple podcasts, 
I've got quite a bit of material to release to you over the next few weeks. I've got an interview that I've conducted with a gentleman who lives in Bucharest, and we talk about the Black Sea. I also have an interview with the man that owns San Juan Sailing, who's going to talk about the sailing courses and the chartering that they do up in Bellingham, Washington. And, of course, I've still got quite a bit of material that Jack Andrews, Neil Fletcher, and I put together while we were on the boat. And this podcast is going to be a continuation of the material that we gathered on the boat. So over the next few weeks, if I can get them edited, I've got quite a few podcasts I can be releasing. My audience seems to be growing slowly but steadily. If you have friends that are interested in this sort of podcast, please turn them on to my podcast. I like to increase my listening audience as I can. Now, I am checking in with Twitter now and then. So if you do send me messages through Twitter, I do see those. Neil is handling Facebook for me and Instagram. So if you need to get a hold of me through Facebook or Instagram, Neil can forward on that information to me. I'm not big on Facebook. I just don't really understand it. So it's better to have people that understand it take care of that for you. All right, my quick advertisement, then we're going to get on to this episode. If you are studying for the ASA 101, 103, or 104 certifications, I think that's basic keelboat certification, basic cruising certification, and bareboat cruising certification. The bareboat cruising certification is what you need in order to charter a sailboat. And interestingly enough, one of the crews that joined me last summer, he talked to me last week and he said, what do I need to do in order to go charter a boat and take my family sailing. I said, well, you need to get the ASA 104 certification. And he went ahead and bought my course. But before you do that, you need to also do the ASA 101 and 103. But as we find out from San Juan Sailings, you can combine all those into one week course if you want to. And we'll talk about that when I put the interview with him up. So anyway, I have an audio course that's going to help you prepare for the written portion of the examination. You can go to the website, medsailor.com. Not medsailors, but medsailor. I guess there's another website out there called medsailors, which is primarily a, a booking, charter booking website. But mine's medsailor, S-A-I-L-O-R. And you can go there and you can click on the study products, and it'll take you to a place called Gumroad if you buy it from the website, which will let you download the lessons in an MP3 file. Or you can also find them in Amazon and iTunes. And I'm still looking for reviewers for my ASA 104 course, so if you're interested in reviewing it and writing an honest evaluation of the course in Amazon and iTunes, get a hold of me. Use the contact form at the website and I can get you a review copy as long as you promise to write an honest review of the ASA 104. All right, this episode is going to be a few little vignettes that I cobbled together. So I'm going to start out with Neil talking about a little restaurant that we visited on the island of Niseros. So I'm going to let Neil take it away right now. We like to pass on recommendations, specifically recommendations if we possibly can. And um, one lovely little restaurant that we found yesterday in the hillside hamlet of Nakia on Nisaros was a place called Andriotti's. Now, we had rented some um, moats, some scooters 
from the port town of Pali where we had moored and we took a tour of the island and we looked at the, uh, the, um, the volcano there, the caldera, which is still smoking and smelling strongly of sulphur. And we built up quite, a, quite, an, quite an appetite by lunchtime. So we went up the hill to this beautiful little town called Nikia, N-I-K-H-I-A, which I think in which we saw a total of four people during the hour that we were there. Um, whitewashed walls, blue shutters, blue paint on the railings, um, nice little Orthodox church, and greeting you as you come into town, you absolutely cannot miss it, is a restaurant called Andriotti's, which has a terrace with a panoramic view over the sea and over the rest of that side of the island. So we had um, grilled vegetables, we had a a wonderful dish of fried um, fried cheese the name of which specifically uh, Sagnaki thank you Franz and that was a that was an immediate draw for Jack that was like a that was like a magnet for him he said oh look fried cheese doesn't get any better than that so we had a plate of that and we had some local rabbit um, with rice um, and and uh, uh, I think it was a bottle of Retsina. And it was a very reasonable meal, but everything just was wonderfully fresh, nicely prepared. The rabbit, which can be hit or miss, um, was sometimes was really good. And the setting was absolutely gorgeous with a couple of cold glasses of Mythos. Uh, that, in fact, that was what we drank. It wasn't the Retsina, it was the Mythos, the local beer. Um, it was really uh, one of our best meals so far. So the place is Andriotti's, the little town is called Nikia, and you can't miss it. It's right there at the entrance to town, and uh, I defy anyone to have a better view from a restaurant table anywhere in the Dodecanese. One addendum to my rave review of Andriotti's that I would like to add, it would be remiss of me if I failed to mention their desserts. Um, the waiter described his choco volcano dessert as famous. I don't really know if it was famous or whether it was just famous in the town, but we had one of those and a panna cotta and some Greek coffee, and it was really a lovely dessert. The, uh, the choco volcano especially had a molten center, rather like a magma crust with the molten earth underneath, and it tasted a lot better and there was no smell of sulfur. So if you are hankering for a dessert when you're at Andriotti's, definitely get the, uh, the choco volcano. The panna cotta really wasn't bad either, but um, speaking as a chocolate fiend, that would be my first and probably my last choice there. Okay, hope you enjoy it. So now in this next little audio clip, we are on the island of Calminos in the little harbor of Vathis. And we've had a couple previous vignettes where we've been at this harbor but in this little clip we we get the lady the owner of the restaurant to talk to us for a minute we are here with the owner of our favorite restaurant on this island and calminos the restaurant is called the name of this island is calimnos calimnos yeah and you are in a small village which name is vathis your English is very good. Not so, so good. So don't be shy. And the name of your restaurant is? Aegeo Pelagos. Which means? Agency. Aegean Sea. That's correct. So we had some fantastic calamari here earlier today. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So would you tell us, for the benefit of our listeners, what your name is and what 
you, if you were here for as a guest, what you would choose to eat? Mm, this is good. Uh, my name is Sula. Sula. Uh, I am the owner of the restaurant. Yeah. And if I was a guest, I would uh, eat the uh, saganaki swims that I loved very much. Saganaki cheese. Swims. Swims. Ah. Okay. It's with uh, red sauce, onion, pepper, and on the end some feta. Uh, okay. I'm here eight years. Eight years. Eight years. Yeah. Uh, the three fourth year it was like a bakery, but then we changed because the bakery was not very good uh, idea for this uh, small village. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So for five years now we have this restaurant. Right. And you have lots and lots of sailors during the summer. Yeah. Coming. Uh, we, we, we wait for these uh, people. Uh. So we this is are, your, your high yeah. time of year? This is where you make the money? Oh, in August. August. Oh, August, August is the is best, time. yeah, okay. the best time for business. So I never want to come in August then. <laughs> <laughs> you doesn't like so much to be busy, huh? Yeah. The noisy. noisy. Well, noisy is okay, but no, it's a small harbor. It's yeah, it's a small harbor, and you have a problem with Ankara. But don't tell this in the radio, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you just have to come early. You yeah, tell people to come early. Just, yeah. keep, yeah. just keep talking. Yeah. And so, apart from oh, the, sa- get it, get it the, the Saganaki shrimp, what else do you like here that you serve that you think is a special dish? The calamari. the calamari. It's a special way that we do. We do two ways. One way is the rings that everybody do, but the other way is uh, the way that we believe that's most uh, more nice. And the secret, but don't tell, is the oil, huh? <laughs> the, the good oil. Okay. Yeah. Yes. We have very fresh f- fish here, mm-hmm. like a squat fish or the small, small fish or the, the red fish, the black. And also our village has... Uh, our village has uh, tomatoes, cucumber, onion, and uh, lettuce. Mm-hmm. So this makes here special because we can have also in our garden. Right. So and everything is uh, lo- most of what you have, the vegetables you grow yourself in your own garden. That's very important. Yeah. That's very important. This is true. Yeah. And in your, fa- is there anyone else in your family who works here? In, in my restaurant? Yes. Yeah. I, I am with my husband uh-huh. and also my first cousin. Uh-huh. And there is a nice guy who serves mm-hmm. He's from Australia. Right. Yes, the gentleman from Australia is uh, one of the big draws of the restaurant and you really can't miss him. If you come to this part of town and you uh, see him, he is uh, probably a gentleman in his oh, 50s. With a shock of white hair and a walrus mustache and a very outsized personality, we've been we've been trying to get him to come and contribute to the podcast, but suddenly the garrulous personality has dried up at the sight of a microphone. <laughs> this this of course is the perils of almost live radio. You never quite know if uh, everyone is going to cooperate, but fortunately we've got some wonderful cooperation from our fabulous chef and proprietor again Sula. So thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, me thank you very much guys. Thank you that you came here. One of the fun things about meeting and sailing with new people is learning about their careers and their past life and in this little vignette Jack and I are talking about some dive equipment. We are looking at some 
information on the net through our iPhones because this little restaurant that we were sitting at in Vathis had great Wi-Fi connections. So we were we were sur- surfing around the web, and he was looking at some dive helmets because I was asking him more about his previous life as a commercial diver. So here we go. So that's a KMB 18. So you can see it's got the the regular adjust the, the regulator. So Jack's talk, talking about helmets that he used when he was <laughs> diving, and uh, we're looking at pictures on the internet of the helmets. And I've never, I mean, I've seen these helmets, and it's definitely not helmets used for sports diving. So, was the purpose of the helmet like a regular helmet then for like construction workers then? Yeah, it gave you uh, it gave you head protection from bumps and so forth, but it also made sure that you were, uh, your head was fully enclosed. So, if you did have any accidents or if you passed out, it, it stopped you from drowning um, by having it set up that way. So, un- unlike um, the typical regulator which you hold in your mouth, uh, if if you pass out during holding one of those in your mouth whilst you're scuba diving, obviously that just drops out and you drown. Okay. Uh, whilst, you know, these, these things are fully enclosed, so it gave you the ability to um, have multiple sources of air supply connected or gas supply connected. It gave you the ability to communicate through to um, the surface because it had um, speakers and a microphone inbuilt. And um, it also gave you fine-tuning on... So there's nothing that's actually in your mouth then in these helmets then? No, no. It actually has a oral nasal, which you can see in this picture. But I'll be able to describe it. It's very similar to the, the type of thing that a fighter pilot would strap onto their face, which covers the nose and the mouth and seals that. So you can even get water into the helmet and you can still be breathing air through that or whatever gas you're breathing at the time. Uh, so even if the helmet did crack, if the shield cracked on it, or the, you, you'd be fine. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was designed for commercial diving, and it's great in that sense. Two two, two different types that we used were KMB 18s and 17s, and and you know one was fully um, fiberglass with brass around it to add weight, and the other one had neoprene around the back, but the front face component of it was the same. You're going to tell us a story, so go ahead if you want to tell that story you were thinking about. The story of the, oh yes, getting off the plane and uh, getting a phone call saying that you're catching the next plane up. And uh, So where was this at? This is a Perth airport. And um, we we came back from being away for two weeks, uh, landed, phone call from the office saying catch the next plane up. Uh, We had a helicopter go down in Karatha, which was the oil and gas place that were large oil and gas facilities there for Woodside and it was a Woodside petroleum helicopter that went down as a super puma and they were coming in to land on one of the LNG carriers and uh, apparently what happens when they came in to land behind on the rear helipad the um, the helicopter got into what they call is it like a dead zone, so the, in effect it lost lift and just dropped into the ocean. The two guys that were on it, uh, pilot and co-pilot, survived. They were fine, but the helicopter didn't stay afloat and sank. Um, so we got the call, but 
we'd been drinking on the way back on this plane flight, so the entire dive crew was fairly drunk. Well, as you get on planes, not too drunk, but yeah, enough. We certainly weren't driving home, that's for sure. So we get back on the next plane, and we think that we're going to be going out the following morning or the next day, but uh, we got back. It was a two-hour flight back up, got off the plane straight into cars, drove straight down to the port, and the recovery barge and the tug were waiting for us. So we straight onto the straight onto the barge, started to set up the dive gear, which included you know all the typical gear that you would have for a five-man team. Um, that included setting up the compressors and getting the hoses out. So uh, we set up the dive gear, and by the time we finished setting up the dive gear, it was the the barge was anchoring in a location where the helicopter went down. And so we'd been up since we got there. It was by the time we got on location, it would have been about one o'clock in the morning. And I went and did the first dive down, and we we had limited lights because it wasn't a construction barge. It was a, it was a much smaller barge, well, used for construction occasionally. But uh, luckily we hit the spot, and uh, I dived off the back of the barge, and we knew we've, we hit the spot by... As soon as I got there, these weird things came flying towards me, and I said, what is that? What are these strange creatures in the water that are coming towards Were me? Were they light? And they... No, it looked like spiny things. And I'm getting closer and closer to it. And what had happened was, when the helicopter hit the water, its rotor blade shattered and it cut the tail off on the helicopter. And the shattered blades were made up of these of carbon fibre. So as I'm going down towards this thing, these carbon fibre spikes are coming straight up at me. Oh, that's <laughs> what you're seeing. There. Yes, I'm seeing that with, with limited visibility. So I immediately arrest my descent. <laughs> And move out of the way and get to the bottom, and um, and you know the helicopter was pretty much sitting there, semi upright. Um, the tail was hanging off, still connected by some cables, but um, but hanging off to one side. So it was a purpose to re- recover the helicopter. Yeah. So we had a crane on the barge, ready to bring the helicopter back up on deck, and uh, we recovered the helicopter and had the had it all packed up by about six o'clock in the morning and. Then we're sailing back home after that. So why would they want to recover the helicopter? Wasn't it a total loss at that point in time? Would they use it for spare parts? Do you have any idea what the purpose was? I believe it's required under if you if it's possible to recover an aircraft that's crashed under federal aviation, and they have to recover it. Okay. Um, And they investigate what happened to to create the accident. I mean, it's it's you know. It's something that could have caused death. It didn't in this case, but um, it was important to recover it and would have been part of the investigation as to why the helicopter went down. Because in in a full situation, the Super Pumas carried quite a decent crew. I'm not sure exactly what the number was, but it would have been around 10 people. Okay. So you imagine if that went down fully loaded, they wouldn't want a repeat of that same incident. As the night was going on, Neil became more and more talkative and started reminiscing about some of his stories he had to tell. And he wanted to tell us about this story about some sausages. So can I tell you the story about the Andouillette sausage in downtown Los Angeles? So about 10 years ago, a little bakery opened up about five minutes from my house in Santa Monica. 
and it was called Le Pain du Jour, which means the bread of the day. And it was run by a very bashful French gentleman called Frank, who came from Brittany, the Brittany region. And he was very shy, and his wife was quite a lot more outgoing. But they made the most wonderful baguettes. It was close to anything I've had in France as I've had in the States. And we used to buy their bread every day. And he could barely look at me when he would take my money and give me the baguettes. He was said he was always happy talking to the bread because the bread talked back to him, but in a nice way, whereas other people didn't. So... One day I wrote a a little piece in the paper and I took a picture of the restaurant, of the bakery, and I put it in the paper and said it was the best bread in Los Angeles, at least the best bread that I'd had. And about a week later, I sent him a copy, and about a week later I'd get a call from a guy who I'd never heard of before, who was called Jacques. And he said, oh, Mr. Neil, he said, I am a friend of Frank Zibeka. He's very, very grateful, but he doesn't know how to tell you himself. So I run a company taking people for rides around Los Angeles, showing them the sights in my red vintage Cadillac. And he has paid for you to come with me and Breeze bring your wife and we will tour the town together. And afterwards we are going to go for lunch at the restaurant owned by his brother in downtown Los Angeles. So we arranged a time and at the appointed day and time this fellow showed up in his red Cadillac. And it was a beautiful 19... I don't know what year it was, but it was one of these beautiful jobs with the lovely fins that went on forever, and it was in immaculate condition. The leather was all beautifully kept. And he drove at a very pedestrian pace around Santa Monica, showing me various celebrity homes and the sites of where the McDonnell Douglas factory used to be. And it was really a lot of fun. So my wife and I had really had a good time. And... Um, but he wouldn't take it on the freeway, so we took 6th Street uh, pretty much all the way downtown, and we, uh, we, we, we went into the restaurant owned by Frank's brother, um, and Frank's brother's name was Hubert, and the restaurant was called Angelique. And the moment that we arrived, he came out to greet us, and he said, Oh, monsieur, I'm so grateful to you. You have done such a wonderful thing. And I said, Well, I'm just happy because I like... I'd like him to do well, and I'd like the bakery to stay open. It's really no big deal. No big deal. And he said, well, he said, today you are my guest, and I'm going to cook you something very special, but look at the menu and tell me what you like. So I looked at the menu, and I recognized everything on the menu. It was all in French, and I've eaten in a lot of French. I've been to France numerous times. It's my favorite country in the world. So I was fairly familiar with everything on the menu, except for a dish called an andouillette which is spelled A-N-D-O-U-I-L-E-T-T-E. And it's a type of rustic French sausage. It's a tripe sausage, basically. So I said to, uh, I said to Hubert, Hubert, I said, um, tell me about this andouillette. And he said, uh, obviously I'd opened a door that he wanted opened because he went into a very long explanation of how he came up with this andouillette sausage. And it turns out that in his little village where he and Frank both came from, there was a butcher who used to make these andouillette sausages. And he retired, and uh, their their parents loved these andouillette sausages, but the the butcher retired, and they could no longer get good andouillette in town. They had to go somewhere else to another village, and it was never the same. So they swore to their parents that if they ever got their dream to go to the U.S. and open a restaurant, that they would put andouillette sausage on the menu. And so they came to Los Angeles, 
and they started this restaurant and um, he decided to go back and speak to the before he opened uh, go back to speak to the retired butcher and the first and he thought well I, I better take a bottle of wine with me because sometimes the older French people can be kind of crusty and they've got trade secrets etc etc so he knocked on the door and the door opened and the old butcher looked at him and just said no close the door so he came back the next day, knocked on the door. The Frenchman butcher looked at him and said, no, close the door again. Anyway, this went on for a couple more days until finally he let him in. And he explained, Hubert explained to the old French butcher what it was he, was, he wanted. And he, uh, he, he said, I, I, don't, uh, I don't give you my recipe. No, this is a family secret. And he said, no, he said, you don't understand. Your recipe is going to die with you. No one is ever going to have the benefit of your sausage again. Why don't you give it to me since you're, you won't be using it? And at least then you, you live on after your death and your sausage will always be remembered in a town as big and famous as Los Angeles. So the, the butcher ummed and ahed and finally he said, well, I won't say yes, but I won't say no. Sit down and let's have a drink. So they opened this bottle of red wine and they drank and they talked about their philosophy of food. And then they opened another bottle of wine and another bottle of wine. And then they opened up the Armagnac, the, uh, the, the brandy, and they started to drink that. And finally, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, the, uh, the, the butcher is very, very drunk. And he says, OK, I go to bed now. And Hubert said to him, well, what about the recipe? And he scratched his head and he looked at him. He didn't look very happy. And then finally, he went to this drawer. He opened it and he pulled out this tattered scrap of paper. And he ha- put it in Hubert's hand. And he said, oh, go away, don't ever come back. So Hubert looked at it, and there was a. It looked like the, it was written about seventy years before. All the writing was faded, and there was annotations and scribbles. But anyway, he brought that recipe back, and he started making the andouillette sausage. And an andouillette sausage, he explained to me, he started off with fifty pounds of beef stomach and sixty pounds of sheep's stomach lining, um, and he would then clean it and discard the stuff that wasn't good enough. And he would finally take that, you know, 100-odd pounds of tripe, offal, depending on what you want to call it, and he would be able to get it down to about 25 pounds of usable meat. Uh, well, hesitate to call it meat, but anyway, let's say it, it was, the, you know, enough to stuff the sausage. So he explained this to all to me, and it was such a fantastic story that then, you know, at the end of it, he said, OK, so what do you want from the menus? So I said, well, I've got to have the entouillette sausage don't i and he said oh very good monsieur it's a very good choice so anyway about 20 minutes later this thing is carried out on a plate and put in front of me and if you've ever seen a commercial or a, a print ad for before and after for colonic irrigation You'll see one picture of a healthy colon and one picture of a very unhealthy colon. Of course, the unhealthy colon is fat and bulging in some places and is thin and stringy in others. Well, this is what this entouillette sausage looked like. It wasn't uniform. It wasn't a thing of beauty. It looked as handmade as it's possible to make something, a handmade piece of, of offal. So he puts it in front of me and I just, I looked at it. Now, I'm a very adventurous eater, but I, my stomach was really starting to churn. I thought, okay, well... I'll give it a try. And, the, and Hubert is standing right next to me looking very uh, expectant. So I cut it open. And as I cut it open, this aroma that was released that was just pure barnyard. You know, 
I could smell chicken, I could smell pork, I could smell beef. And it wasn't just the animal parts I could smell. I am almost positive that I could smell a little diesel from the crankcase of the tractor <laughs> that Huber's butcher had used. And I could, I'm sure there was also just an essence of Wellington boot in there somewhere as well. And I had a taste. And the taste was almost as overpowering and unpleasant as the smell, possibly more so. Anyway, I gulped it down, and the Huber's looking at me expectantly, and the waiter, who obviously had been through this procedure before, said to me, you know, monsieur, it's much better with a little bit of bread and a little bit of mustard and perhaps a little bit of uh, red wine, but we are outside, we don't have a license, but I put it in a cup for you. So I waited until the mustard arrived and the bread arrived and then the red wine arrived, um, and I actually got managed to eat the whole thing. Um, as I said, I, I always considered myself, an, uh, because I felt I had to, after he had brought this recipe over and gone to such unbelievable lengths. Um, but I think at some point you reach a stage of saying, well, it's good to be adventurous. But if your stomach is churning and it's not fun, that's the point you should, you know, order the steak and chips instead. So, <laughs> anyway... So we had liver tonight, yeah, and that, that was cooked in a style similar to my, uh, that we would have it back in England, the liver and the bacon and the onions, and uh, that was good, and I think we both, you, everyone enjoyed the liver and the onions, right? But it was, uh, it's, it's tame compared to an Andouillette sausage. So one of the nice things I had this summer is uh, with Jack and Neil, we circumnavigated Calminos, and I'd been in and out of Vathi, or Vathis, several times, and it was always too crowded to actually anchor there. And this year, we were able to find a spot. We were the last ones really to get a spot farther down, even though later on in the evening, some of the charter boats, or not the charter boats, but some of the uh, tour boats left, and there was room for a couple other sailboats to come in later on in the evening. But we got there early in the afternoon, and were able to get a, a place in Vathis. Well, then we continued around the next day up to in a little harbor called Palionesis. And the pilot was not very accurate in its description of this little harbor. It showed all around good anchorage, but it also showed that it got fairly deep, fairly close. So it was a surprise to come into this little harbor, this delightful little harbor. And we'll let the proprietor of the restaurant tell us a little bit about it. And then I'm going to go directly into Jack giving a little more information on the anchorage. So we're here in the little taverna in Palionesis. What's the name of the taverna here? What's, it, what's the name of the taverna? Caligoris? Here. You want to tell us of, of how you came to own this? Tell us your story. The story, the story is uh, for 50 years now. It's open before there was no road here, no electricity, no water, nothing. My job is construction buildings, no construction with economic crisis now. And now we start the news, we saw the boats coming here, and we start uh, some new business. Taverna with the moorings, with the climbers also, and it's going very well. So how long has your restaurant been here? Fifth, this is the fifth season fifth here, year. yes. Fifth year? Yes. Yeah. And when you say we, is this you and your family or Yes, wife? yes, my wife, my family. Uh-huh. And you have my to give the name of the place and... It's, the name is Palionisos and Kalimnos, yes, and Taverna is Taverna Kalimnos. So when we 
came in on the boat, they had moorings, and there's orange moorings and white moorings, and all the moorings say are welcome. And there's room for 11 or 12 mooring buoys on this harbor, which makes it much more effective for boats to come in here, because if everybody was on anchor, there might be room for maybe five or six boats to be in here at the most, because it gets deep fairly quickly. So we're pointed basically northeast. We're protected for the most part all around. There might be a little open area, but it's a nice, beautiful little harbor. We swam to shore from the boat. Jack took the dinghy in. As I'm sitting here, there's another boat coming in to pick up a mooring buoy and another boat behind it. And before before the evening is over, I think all these mooring buoys will be taken. We we really hadn't planned on staying here today, but we came up from our previous anchorage and we just decided to check it out. Had I hadn't been here before. And we liked the look of it and we just picked up a mooring buoy and decided to stay today. So it saved us a lot of other bumping against the wind because we were motoring into the wind. We weren't doing any sailing today, we were just motoring. So it was a nice stop. So we're still at the Kalindonis Taverna here. And um, <clears throat> it's Jack and Franz and Neil have gone back to the boat. I think Franz has decided to uh, go and clean the stern of the boat. A bit of diesel exhaust on it. And uh, he needed a swim and a nap in that order, I guess. Um, I decided to stay at the taverna, continue drinking beer, and I had a chance to further discuss the um, this area with the owner. And uh, he had built the taverna. He'd built the taverna in about uh, three or four months, uh, so he's into construction. Uh, most of the work he did himself with a couple of labors, laborers, and he's been running it, as he said, for about five years. And they've got moorings in here, as previously mentioned, but uh, the moorings are coloured, and there's red ones and white ones. And the red ones belong to the taverna on the other bank, which is uh, on the starboard side, if you're looking at the beach. And the white ones are on the um, port side, as you're looking towards the beach, which belong to this owner's taverna. And they each spend money on putting these moorings in, a uh, chain and a concrete clump weight. Uh, also, the, the clump weights are interconnected with chains below the surface. Oh, it's his intention to put another two or three moorings in over this next year, so they'll keep extending the moorings as as they go out. Currently, the moorings at the at the closest end to the beach are in about seven meters of water as he told me, and uh, the ones in the back are at 20 metres of water, so it's about 60 feet. It then gets pretty deep fairly quickly. It's about 120 feet uh, if you double the distance out to the last mooring. And they do intend to continue putting moorings in, but obviously it's a costly exercise for them. But again, the more moorings they have, the more customers arrive here. Uh, typically the the boats that come out of cash uh, that you know, you have the boat hires, bare boat charter companies that come out of cash. This is a location that they do put on their 
on their map for places to come because of the fact that there are moorings. Um, the moorings are free, and it doesn't matter whether you pick up a white one or a red one. It would appear as though the Taverna owners uh, seem to share the customers, irrespective of uh, whether you pick up white or red. Both say welcome on them. Uh, as mentioned before, they're free moorings. So certainly not a bad place to be, not a bad place to come. Um, free moorings are good. So that's going to finish up this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me, please use the contact form at the website. If you're interested in some study material for the ASA 101, 103, or 104, I have an audio course for those courses. And please check them out at the website or in Amazon or in iTunes or in CD Baby. Feel free to get a hold of me by using the contact form at the website or writing me, Franz, F-R-A-N-Z, at medsailor.com. Also, I love to travel and talk and meet people. So if you have a group, a yacht club, that wants me to put on a presentation sometime, get a hold of me. We might be able to arrange it. Again, Franz at medsailor.com. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking. Where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs> The introduction and exit quotes for this podcast were from the movie Risky Business, released in 1983 and written by Paul Brickman. The dialogue, which was used in order, were played by Curtis Armstrong, who in the movie played the character Miles Dalby, Nicholas Pryor, who in the movie played Joel's father, Mr. Goodson, and Tom Cruise, who was the main character, who played the character of Joel Goodson. One of my favorite movies of all time.